here to offer us some perspective, and hopefully at the end of his presentation, some hope is Professor Jonathan Janssen, our esteemed guest speaker. Professor Jonathan Janssen is Distinguished Professor of Education at the University of Stellenbosch. In 2016-17, he was a fellow at the Center of Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, and in 2018-19, will be a fellow at the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Studies. He is currently president of the South African Institute of Race Relations and president of the South African Academy of Science. He started his career as a biology teacher in the Cape after receiving a science degree from the University of the Western Cape. He obtained an MS degree from Cornell University and a PhD from Stanford. He holds honorary degrees from the universities of Edinburgh, Vermont, and Cleveland State. In 2013, he was awarded the Education Africa Lifetime Achiever Award in New York, the Spend Love Award from the University of California for his contribution to tolerance, democracy, and human rights, and he also won the largest book award from the British Academy for the Social Sciences and Humanities for his book, Knowledge in the Blood. His latest books, both published in 2018, include Inequality in South African Schools with Nick Spall, The Politics of Decolonization, and Making Love in a War Zone, which concerns interracial intimacies amongst university students. It's a great privilege and a great honor to have Professor Janssen speak with us today. Please give him a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you very much. You remind me so much of my students. You sit towards the back. Now, that's a big mistake because I'm going to come to you with this uh, roving mic. How many of you are actuaries? I'm, I, you know, holy shit. I mean, um, I mean I'm not going to make a single joke about actuaries, but, um, and, you know, uh, 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 and so. Did I speak to some of you in Cape Town a few years ago? Yes. Ah, yes, I remember. I remember. It was the worst experience I ever had. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, uh, um, uh, I might have mentioned it then, but I'm going to mention it again now. The, uh, the South African education system, as you know, is sort of in a crisis, and it's been in a crisis for a very long time, and it's gay. it can get out of that crisis very easily, but, but it requires two things. One, it requires knowledge, that is, you've got to know what you're doing, but also it requires political will, okay? You can solve, no kid has to drown in a pit latrine. I mean, for heaven's sake, it's 2018, you can fix that. It's less than 3,000 schools without toilets. You can fix that overnight. But you need the political will, the care, as well as, of course, uh, the knowledge. And, um, but there's one thing about uh, the actuarial science program at my former university that I always uh, really enjoyed uh, seeing, and that was that the only black students and the students who performed better than any other student were from which country? Zimbabwe. How did you know this? Zimbabwe. Absolutely. And you know, this morning I went for breakfast in the hotel across the road. I just want to show this picture to you guys. Uh, I, I, uh, so I go for breakfast this morning. And I don't know if you've ever had breakfast in the morning with, in, a, in a South African hotel. I mean, the South Africans look like shit. I mean, they just look... You know, they look miserable. You can see that they want to be there. You know, they're complaining about the next strike. You know, it's a, we, we are a miserable people. And I'm not even covering actuaries here. We're just miserable. You know, you look like you lost a relative. You're just constantly in a bad mood. And this woman comes bouncing towards my table, laughing, smiling. I've seen you before, sir. I said, I'm sorry. I, I'm not the father. And she says, no, I am... 
<laughs> I think I've seen you on TV. I said, look, before we get into any of that, why are you smiling? Why are you so happy? I can tell you now, you're not a South African. She says, how did you know? I'm from Zimbabwe. I said, you just lost the fucking election. Why are you happy? We are sad people. And you know, it reflects in the fact, and I'm going to go to the main body of slides quickly, it reflects in the fact that what's happening in our country today is people generally just feel miserable. They feel hopeless. If you talk to educationists, they'll say, you know what? We've been working at this for over 20 years, and up to 8 out of 10 kids, according to the poll study, cannot read in grade 4. For comprehension, they pick up a book, and they just see letters. Grade 4. This kid of mine, the, this is my grandchild, sorry. Her name is Zara. She is five months old, my first grandchild. And you know, uh, you South African, sir, I can just see on your face what you're thinking. <laughs> and her parents, who are both teachers here in uh, Pretoria and uh, in Gauteng, they came for the holidays, the school holidays in June, and, you know, what they would do is they would wake up at five in the morning, come into uh, our bedroom, and just hand over the kid. They'd feed the kid, clean up, and then hand them over so that they can sleep. And boy, for two weeks, I was like blown away. You know, you know it's something different. Any grandparent, it's just something different than when you had your own kids. They say it's God's gift to you, these kids, for not killing your own children. And so I was, I was just so incredibly blessed in the morning. So I would take her downstairs every morning at 5 a.m. and read to the child. And this morning, things didn't work out too well. Not only with, <laughs> with the projection, but um, I took out, uh, I bought her the whole series of Dr. Seuss books, so I read to her, um, you know, uh, the cat and the whiskers or something. <laughs> the cat and the whiskers. Holy crap. Do you have kids? The cat and that, you know. <laughs> the cat and the whiskers. Give me a break. <laughs> you know. So I'm reading the cat and that, and I could see that Zara was bored. You know, she's a Jansen, you know. So the level was clear. So I took out Tolstoy's War and Peace, and she settled down. She just settled down. <laughs> Anyway, but for those of you who have small children, or those of you who are parents, I see a lot of young people here, let me just tell you something. It's not too early to read to your kids. Okay? And there are some mad people who say you should even read in the womb. Uh, I wouldn't go that far. But, you know. So we read to the kids. But the problem is when you have grandchildren, the future looks different. You then worry. You worry about the fact that the economy is not growing and hovering around 1%. You worry about the fact that the employment rate has shot up, and it's even higher if you include in that statistic, as you know, those who just gave up looking for a job. In other words, it is, we, you know, I worry that we are now live in Stellenbosch. There's been yet another farm invasion, landing, you know, invasion of a farm, and, uh, and people sort of worry about what's going on. Everybody thought Cyril Ramaphosa was the answer. There was a period of time called Ramaphoria. You remember that? Now everybody knows he has no balls you know, to take on the difficult issues. Everybody knows that. So people are obviously feeling down. 
apart from our, you know, regular face down whiskers, you know, uh, kind of look, people are just feeling miserable. And so wherever I go, before, when I used to give talks, organized by that gentleman over there, Stuart Lee, organizing my talks, taking huge pressure off me in terms of diaries, people would say, talk to us about the state of primary school education. Talk to us about the future of universities. Talk to us about the state of the economy. People would ask me everything. Today, everybody, including Costa, says, give us hope. Isn't that interesting? People want to have a sense. So what does the future look like? Now, now between you and me, I'm a realist. In my politics, I'm a realist. I, I sat next to the DG for Science and Technology yesterday on the plane. It was the most miserable two hours of my life. Because I had to convince this guy that the new white paper for science and technology is a load of shit. Because in the absence of having power to change things, you do what the French do. You generate policy. There's actually a study that showed that South Africans are the second highest, uh, in, in, in terms of countries, national entities, we produce the second highest number of policies. You know why? Because we don't have power. So why change the constitution when you already had the power in the constitution to effect expropriation? It's, it's just this political symbolism that you play with to give people a sense, in this case, that you're better than the EFF. This is an election ploy. It's got nothing to do with the reality on the ground. Because if they did, the people in District 6, the people in, you know, Sophia Town, the people all over the country would have gotten their land back. But it's not about that. It is about politics. And so, understandably, our people are concerned about the future. And who should be more concerned than you guys? Because you deal with pensions. Oh, my Lord. And calculating, you know, by the way, there's a, uh, going to the New York Times online, yesterday there was a front page article on the, the growing number of people who would now retire without having enough money, you know, to, and it doesn't help if you live long and longer uh, every year. So, are you guys ready for me or not? So, okay, this is you guys. This is the question everybody asks. And I'm going to deal with this question from a different point of view. Being a realist, I'm going to make the case that we'll be okay. And I'm not saying this because of my roots in the evangelical movement, where even though you could see you're about to die, you somehow tell people you're going to a very nice place, you know, with uh, 40 virgins. No, sorry, that's Islam. Um, but we have this incredible potential, don't forget, for self-correction. We've been here before. In fact, we've been in worse places before. If you've lived long enough, you will remember the late 1980s. And you will remember there was about a dozen books written with titles like this. Five Minutes to Midnight. Can South Africa Survive? And all of that. You know what? You know what? This thing makes me think about this... Uh, 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 problems with it. I'm sure it worked last night. And it just reminds me, having come back to the country now, of, uh, after a year away, of, uh, have you ever been to a Cape Flats funeral? This is what happens. Everything worked the day before. There's a drunk uncle. Half the people don't know why they're there, but there's food. And, and, and whoever puts up rejection, it doesn't work. Okay? But this is not a Cape Flats funeral. This is the Santa Convention Center, by God. How did we get there? 
But there were books like that. At the university where I was studying at the time in California, there was a bunch of guys, Gannon, Dugnan, they actually simply wrote books with apparent empirical evidence to back them up that South Africa was going to go uh, down to the wire and we would then, as Craig Williamson put it, uh, resort to the football stadium solution and wipe us all out. My generation didn't think democracy would come in our lifetime. We really didn't. That's why I get so upset when students today sort of say, well, you sold us out. Well, you have no idea what Mandela had to deal with as he came out of prison with the most powerful military in the world, uh, sorry, in Africa, on the continent, but without moral authority, and a movement, liberation movements, with incredible moral authority, but no power to overturn the state. So we sat in with this dilemma, and everybody thought it's going nowhere. And then, of course, as you know, this happened. This man, whom I was there when he was released, I cried like a baby. I couldn't believe that I would eventually see this person, because we had no mental image of him, remember? Because of all the banned uh, materials and stuff. Comes out of prison with his wife, uh, sort of, and, um, <laughs> and we all begin to believe again. We've been there before, we've been in terrible places, and I have no doubt that once again, we have the ability to self-correct. The other thing that makes us different from many countries in the world is we have, as South Africans, this extraordinary capacity for forgiveness. You know, South African men come across as brutes, eh? They look like, you know, uh, you know, one of my favorite sports is rugby. You know, rugby doesn't have a soccer problem. In soccer, I told my daughter, you never, ever marry an Italian soccer player. Because, you know, they go flying through the air before somebody touched them. They roll in pain without any physical contact. A South African man in a rugby match, all his buttas, all his ribs were broken in one match, but he goes down for the scrum because tigers don't cry. That's who we are. That's why South African men, you know, when they come and they look, you know, all sort of muscular and ready to fight because our default reaction in a crisis is to fight as men. We messed up, man, badly. And by the way, if you have boys, can I suggest you teach them how to cry? It's true, this is Women's Month, and I tell you, I shudder when I read women's experiences on the Twitter feed this morning. I sort of say, you know, what bloody country are we? This notion that I can put my hands on the body of a woman without her permission. I mean, I don't get it. But we messed up as men. And one of the reasons, of course, is our horrible, horrible past. But you know, behind that facade of muscularity, of being in control, and all of that, is a vulnerability. We saw this with my friend Bungani Mayosi. He is one of the most distinguished cardiologists in the world. Okay? I sat in his office a couple of months ago. And I knew there was something wrong. But he's a real man, you see. He showed his vulnerability and sadly took his own life. But nobody should judge him or anybody else who takes their own life. But there is a vulnerability behind this facade. And this guy, on his knees, he used to make your children disappear if they were activists. We had a nickname for him during the struggle 
uh, in the streets of Cape Town, we would say flock off. Because they were messed up men. Oh, we just found out they were even more messed up than we thought. You saw that book that's just been released on Milan being a pedophile. These were horrible people. They all went to church on a Sunday, the Dutch from church, but they were fucking screwed. Man. But this hardened man goes on his knees just north of here in Mamalodi and asks the mothers of the children he may disappear for forgiveness and he goes on his knees with the most unoriginal statement ever because it's in Luke's gospel. I have sinned against the Lord and I have sinned against you. Will you forgive me? That's us. And you know what happened? Instantly, the Mamalodi mother said, we forgive you. Let me tell you something. You make my boy disappear. I'm coming after you, man. Your kneecaps. Target number one. Who just forgives? That's us. Frank Chicani, this bloke, poisoned his clothes. He almost died in Namibia. They had to take him to hospital in, uh, in the U.S. He goes on his knees, washes the feet of Frank Chicani, says, please forgive me. What does Pastor Frank say? I forgive you. Americans are not like that, hey? You fly two planes into their buildings, they'll fuck you up, which they did. They called it awe and wonder. And they dropped bombs and wiped out half of Baghdad. That's who they are. Our DNA is different. We forgive. And when those four racist boys at my former university racially abused those five workers, four of them were women, Every instinct, and I joined the university after this event because I was curious. I'd written a book about this called Knowledge in the Blood, and I wanted to know how did this play out in the middle of the country in our Mississippi, in the Free State. And I remember very clearly my white colleague saying to me, these are four bad apples. But after six months, he says, as a professor, your job is to think. My kid used to ask me, Dad, what does a professor do? I said, I think they pay you to think. Which makes you wonder what they do at Vets. But anyway, <clears throat> so we had, I was thinking, why would four boys do something so horrific on a campus that is over 100 years old and get an award for this video of them racially abusing other people? So I said to my colleagues, no. These four boys are not the problem. The problem we have is an institution that has a problem, a racial problem, a racist problem. And therefore, simply putting these boys in prison is going to solve nothing. In fact, there will be a greater danger if you send them back to their father's farms and they continue to abuse black workers. So bring them back and seek a way forward for them to both pay reparation but also seek forgiveness. And I remember the night very clearly. I remember the exact moment when these four boys eventually sat across the table from the five workers. And one of them, Dani, he was from Namibia. <laughs> He's the only one who could speak a bit of English, but he spoke to them in Afrikaans and he said, Saliela owns us a belief for Kiva. And I thought, oh crap. Will you please forgive us for what we did. And his body was shaking as he was crying. 
And I knew at that point anything could happen. You know, he was still talking when one of the women spoke to him, not in her language, Sasutu. She spoke to him in Afrikaans and she said, Manatirlik, jylle is ons kinders, you are our children. And half my colleagues just left the room because they were overwhelmed with emotion. That is who we are. We have the ability to forgive. So when I see all this racial hatred and some idiots just making statements like, most Indians are racist, I said, oh, Lord, help us. I don't know where the sudden discovery of racism comes from. You know, unless you were from the planet Mars, we probably all have a bit of racism in us. <clears throat> Went to a meeting the other day, and fortunately this group of thugs spoke before, in, uh, ahead of me. They, were, uh, uh, they, they go by the very innovative name of Hartfall Cape Town. And Hartfall Cape Town believes that every black African in the Cape is from the Eastern Cape. You know, make my blood boil, you talk such shit. Because <laughs> they obviously don't know the history of the Cape. The de-skilling of African labor with the arrival of the Colored Labor Preference Act. People used to fix your cars, the mechanics, the plumbers in Cape Town, in District 6, were Africans. They were systematically de-skilled by that legislation. The sudden discovery of a racial pride, but a destructive racial pride, is something that bothers us. But I'm not confused by the fact that the majority, the moral majority, the great number of South Africans, I work in all the nine provinces, and I can tell you now, whether it's in a farm, where the farmer lost his wife, in a place called Yugi, or whether it is in a school where the gangsters in Haderfeld are shooting, you know, just outside the gates, whether it's in the Plumstead Methodist Church, whether it is wherever I go in this country, the overwhelming majority of people here want this country to succeed, and that gives me hope. That makes me secure in the future. But we have this capacity to forgive. We also have the ability to laugh at ourselves when we are in a crisis. I'll just let that slide sink in. And those of you who didn't go to Model C schools, you'll get it. The rest of you will wonder, who the hell is Joe Masipas? <laughs> I love this one. There was tension in Cape Town where I now live again after since 1983. And, and, and everybody was really very tense. You know, what's going on? They want to rename the airport. And once again, they want to rename it after the black... African nationalists don't have any imagination. And Winnie Mandela, oh God, no! I mean, I'm, I'm just telling you what's happening in the family, but Everybody's bloody tense. Okay, okay, if you must rename it, rename it after, you know, one of the, uh, uh, the original peoples of the Cape, uh, uh, of the Sada, name it after Kratoa. You've seen the movie Kratoa? You must. The most interesting part of the movie is the credits at the end because it shows all the people who carry the blood of the Koyuman, Kritoa, F.W. de Klerk, <laughs> all these sort of pure whites, uh, etc. 
but the tension was building, and then somebody came up with this, well, look, just name it, the airport Joe Masipas. Do you know Joe Masipas? No. Oh, you guys are not very helpful. Sir, you look like a Free State graduate. Do you know Joe Masipas? I do. I'm from Cape Town. You're from Cape Town. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I was on a flight the other day, and a woman says to me, a white woman says to me, English woman, eh, what's Joe Mas-? I told her this joke. She said, what's Joe Masipas a comrade? I said, Lord, help us. <laughs> but just imagine if you wanted to make a point against authority, you use the local slang, and you say, your master I mean, that is, you know, and everybody laughs because this, uh, now you get it, right? <laughs> we have this ability to laugh at ourselves. We also have this capacity as a country, as a nation, to enact and to be moved by gestures. Now you know where we learned this from? <laughs> the prince of gestures, a man called Nelson Mandela. I always wondered why the hell would this man, who spent 27 years in prison, get on a plane and a helicopter to a godforsaken place near uh, Strydenburg called Orania to have coffee and meltdown with Tani Betsy for Wurt, who's an unrehabilitated racist. Why would he make the effort? Well, he took the cameras with him, you see, because he knew that with this potential to explode and tear each other apart, he needed to engage in this gesture that would make people understand the importance of black and white. <laughs> coming together despite the pain of the immediate past. You think this man loved rugby? He hates rugby. He's a boxer. But he puts on the number six shirt of the captain, walks onto the Alice Park Stadium, and grown men were crying. Frederick van Selsen says in his book, The Last White Parliament, he saw some AWB people, and the one said to the others, Mandela walked across the field, Dar, loop, my president. The one moment they wanted to kill him as a terrorist. The next moment, oh, not my president. We are easily moved by gestures. You know, I was in a home of the Irish last week. The Irish is a sort of 30-something-year-old couple in a place in Cape Town called Meadow Ridge. They sort of South Africans with a conscience. They drove all the way to Stalemos to see me a couple of times. So I said, I better go to the school. I don't have much time, but let me go. You know what they did? They went into their garage. It's a small, they have a typical small home in Meadow Ridge. Meadow Ridge isn't, you know, Weinberg proper or Upper Kenilworth or Bishop's Court. Trust me. Anything that's near a fish shop in Cape Town, you know, is dodgy. But, you know, they, it's, it's a very decent house. And the garage has been transformed into this amazing space. Because she's a former uh, primary, uh, preschool teacher, and there were black kids there that they selected and take into the school. And they teach them numeracy and literacy. And those kids came bouncing out of the gate. And they were talking to me and giving me the history of Nelson Mandela and giving this because that's what they were learning. And I thought to myself, you know, and every one of those kids is connected to a school like Berkeley Primary, Weinberg Prep, so that they go from knowing very little to being able to go to a quality school 
some of them onto university and so on and so forth. So when you ask me, people often ask me these functions, what can we do? I say, go Irish. Where you are with your skills, make that difference. But the gesture overwhelmed me. Do you know what this is? There's a group in Cape Town in Weinberg called the Open Mosque. I love these guys, partly because they drive other Muslims crazy. And what the Open Mosque people did, they came to see me and they said, why don't you come to the Weinberg Synagogue? We're going to break our fast. I said, what the hell? They said, yes. The Weinberg Synagogue invited them to break their fast during Ramadan in the synagogue. I said, are you nuts? In what country so does that happen? It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't happen in northern Nigeria, I can assure you. It doesn't happen in Dallas, Texas. It happens in South Africa. The power of the gesture. And you know what? After they broke their fast, they then had Shabbat with their Jewish brothers and sisters. Now you see, because you're only staring at the headlines of IOL, you see crisis and chaos and racism and farm invasions and farm murders and everything bad. What you're not seeing are the ordinary, oh man, talking about the Muslim faith. The other day I was on a flight. Now you must never take a 6 a.m. flight out of Cape Town to Germany and this book messes you up. Everybody looks angry. Nobody greets you. You're half asleep and then you take off. Because you got up at 3. Just in case the alarm didn't go off at 4. You know that story. And I'm sitting on the plane up front, and out of the cockpit at 37,000 feet comes a woman in a job, and I said, oh God, we're all going to die. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> but the guy next to me, he panicked. His coffee flew all over me. I had to change my clothes. A woman in a job. You know, that would never happen on Delta Airlines. <laughs> in the USL, the plane won't take off, I promise you that. They're so bloody paranoid. And out comes Fatima Chukut from Wellington. And I said, in what country? Can you see such incredible beauty? And that's who we are. The power of the gesture. And then, as I mentioned about the Irish, this incredible moral underground. Wherever I talk about the moral underground, I'm amazed at how many people give of themselves. And by the way, as actuaries, let me tell you how you can make a massive difference in South Africa. Maybe you're already doing this. If not, here's a suggestion. Why don't you really help talented young people get from school into university and from university into your particular uh, field? I was walking behind two women over the skyway this morning, and uh, I thought they probably bunked school because they both looked very young. I thought there's probably grade 12 kids. And then they stopped to talk. They're from Cape Town. And you know, each one of them got a scholarship, Metropolitan, Santam, that enabled them to get into this industry and enabled them now to be able to lead in the country on boards and so on and so forth. Make that difference. Don't just look into yourself. Don't just care about your own pocket. You know what our, our biggest problem is? And I'm especially people who like to make money. I had a horrible, my worst interview ever I had happened the other day. <laughs> Don't know how many of you tuned into that on Bruce Whitfield. You know a guy called Bruce Whitfield? So Bruce Whitfield arranges to interview me. I pull off my car in Randburg and I talk to this bloke. 
And Bruce made the biggest mistake of his life, and he realized within an instant he, had, he, he got the wrong man. He said, Professor, what is your philosophy of money? I said, simple, give it away. Now, of course, you're supposed to not talk such crap. You're supposed to talk investment. You're supposed to talk laying it away. You're supposed to talk how to make more money. I said, give it away. He said, we now take a commercial break, and we'll come back to Professor Jansen. So they took a break, and the producer says to me, are you out of your fucking... No, you didn't say that. But, I mean, you know, I could see they were trying. Because, and he said, where did you get this idea? I said, very simple. Long time ago, a friend of mine said, have you ever seen a hearse with a fenter? And that changed my mind about money. You can't take it with you. Give it away. Yeah, but what about your children? Very simple. I give my kids the best education they will ever get. But I don't give them a cent. They must work for it. Like I did. Give you the best education, but you work for it. This nonsense of getting things. Yes, it pains me that I can't buy a house where I want to because, you know, I look at these rich UCT kids, including some fallers. The parents just buy them a five million rand house in Claremont this, uh, apartment. I said, where the hell did they get this money? Yeah, I'm pissed off. But, you know, I don't think they're happy. I'm happier to give my money away. Nothing gives me greater pleasure than to give 50% of my salary every month to students so that they can study. Black and white, by the way. The only criterion is you must be poor. To give your money away. May I suggest that to you, sir? Give it away. There's much greater joy in giving than in getting and in making a difference in our country. And there are so many South Africans who do this every single day, and I can keep you here till midnight. And then, you know, we've got this determination. Now, you know, I'm a sports person, as you heard. I thought after we lost the test, we were clapped. I think the South African word is clapped in Sri Lanka. We lost the test by 170, 180, both tests, runs. But you know, there's something in us that comes back in the one-day games, and we clapped them back. And we just won the series yesterday. 3-0 ahead, an unassailable lead, and you knocked them out of the park. And there is something in us that doesn't give up even when. The chips are down. You've seen this in almost every uh, aspect of our culture, and that gives me enormous hope. And, you know, if you look at, here's the first black uh, captain, Siakulisi. It's not an accident that he's holding the hands of a white boy. It's not at all uh, a, a dilemma, a, 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 an accident that you have a team, for the first time with so many black rugby players, and, of course, we beat England. And then, of course, we must never forget our heritage as we look forward in hope. And that is that we stand on the shoulders of giants. One of them is, of course, this great man, Nelson Mandela. The other, of course, Archbishop Tutu. But nobody seems to know who the woman is. So if this being Woman's Month, who is she, man? You know what? I miss teaching. Whenever I teach a large group of South African students, they know that my methodology is what they call the Socratic method, you know. And I come with the mic, and the other day in the free state, I was teaching a class of two and a half thousand students, and as I came with the mic, the one kid panicked. She didn't know I understand Afrikaans, and she prayed. 
En ze sê, nou sorry, Lizzie, dus kijk, ik luister daar en sê, ach, heren, mag hier die plaag net voorbij gaan? <laughs> May this plague just pass over me. Who is that woman? No idea. Where are you from? From Gauteng, not wherever. I don't know. She was from Gauteng. Okay, well then I... By this time, this, I, I can see you guys are not Generation X. By the time I asked this question, you knew I'm coming down because it's Women's Month. This is where you take out your phone. You Google Dulcie September so that by the time I get to you, you look smart. No idea. So Dulcie September is from a, 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 a very small uh, little uh, section of Athlone in the Cape called Q-Town. It's where you go when you're feeling suicidal, you go through Q-Town, you don't come out, it's like Umlazi J-section, you go in there, you don't come out. And she joins the ANC, it's a young woman, a teacher, and she flees into exile as a result of the harassment, and she becomes eventually the ANC's representative in Paris. And one morning on her way to the office, the theory is that she discovered something about the arms deal, even then. And as she opens the door of the office, she gets blown into small pieces. But nobody talks about Dulce September. I love that we talk about Madiba and Arch. But there were many other women, many other men, like Dulce, who paid the sack. And you see, when I look at these people, I find the strength to go on. When I look at these people, I tell myself, these are people of character. These are people who sacrificed a lot for our country. And we have the privilege of being led by them. So yeah, our country is in trouble. Yeah, it looks very bleak at the moment. But we've been there before. We can overcome this. There are more good people in this country than bad, and we have wonderful role models on whom we can rely. That's the message I want to leave with you today. And I just want to conclude with, with, with a quick story, you know. I was so upset with what was going on in the country, particularly during the state capture days, you know, that I said, you know, this time if they asked me to stay and take a professorship in another country, I would just do it. Because I always said no because of my duty here. And one morning, you know, I uh, was taking that early flight from Blue, uh, Cape Town to Bloemfontein and I uh, was living in Claremont and in Claremont, as you know, there is uh, an uh, a engine with the willies inside. It's the only place in the country where you can find sugar-free biscuits of every kind in that willies opposite Bihari's, the Indian restaurant. So I go in there at four in the morning and as I climb out of my car rushing, there is a woman with a mop uh, cleaning the floor outside the Willys. And I thought, this is strange, but I said, good morning. And I walked on, and as I walked past her, she said, with the cadence of a Cape Flats woman, I hear you leaving the country, eh? I said, excuse me, how do you know about my movements? She says, no, I read it in the voice. <laughs> voice is a prestigious paper. <laughs> and then she said something that changed me fundamentally she said this she said you can't leave the country eh? my son needs you my son needs you 
Ladies and gentlemen, I have not met a son. I will never meet a son. But for her, it was about being present in this crisis as we get through it. And being present in this crisis doesn't just mean being physically present. It means being emotionally present. It means being intellectually present. It means being spiritually present to get us through. And I believe we will. So I went away, wrote my three books at Stanford, came back, and of course, popped in during the day this time at this engine garage for my sugar-free biscuits. And you know, those of you who know the setup there, you know there's about six or seven teller machines. The last one right at the end was unoccupied. There was nobody there, so I went down, and I took out my biscuits, and I put it on the rest. And as I looked up, I said, oh, my Lord, no. Guess who was the teller? The woman with the mop. Now, at this point, you get suspicious. You start to think, touched by an angel. Remember that thing? <laughs> Yeah, you work with somebody right at the end, they say, I'm actually not a trader. Well, I was never a trader, but you know, I'm an angel and a light shines on the head. And I said, I'm not looking at this woman, oh my God. You know, the divine is speaking, don't look. So I paid for my stuff, didn't look up, and walked towards the door. And as I got to the door, she speaks. She says, it's good to have you back, hey? Now we have hope again. You know, I went into my car and I cried like a baby. Because I don't have a high opinion of myself. I'm just like all of you. I work my 18 hours a day to make this a better country. But for her, it meant a lot. And so many depend on all of you, on all of us, to really take our country through. Don't worry about these politicians. You've heard, <laughs> you've heard that joke here that politicians are like diapers. You heard that one? They must be changed often and for the same reason. <laughs> they will come and they will go and we'll still be here. God bless you. Thank you for what you do and uh, I hope you take some hope from this. Do any of you have any questions before I leave? Any comments? Any suggestions? Any ideas? This is your moment. Costa, I have a few minutes, right? Yes, you got, right. got Any questions for the professor? There's, a one, there's one right behind yeah, you, professor. Yeah, this is how I know you actually are not sociologists. Sociologists would <laughs> professor, be a, Let me just get you a roving mic. Let me get you a roving mic, please. Are you? Oh, there you go. Um, thank you, professor. It was really good. Um, I think a lot of us actually have hope. You mentioned one practical thing that we can do, and that's with the education. But would you mind breaking it down a little bit more for us? I think a study fund's one thing, but I still think we're not getting to the people that really, really need it. Any ideas from your side in the world that you're working that one of us can maybe make a difference? Okay. Let me just say a couple of things, first of all, before we jump into education uh, um, uh, uh, suggestions. I want you to take a hard look. Let me talk your language here. South Africa, you might not know this, but South Africa has the highest rates of return on investment to education of private rates to, uh, rates to return in the world. In other words, if you invest in an individual, 
the returns are much higher than any other country, both in terms of the individual, but also the domestic, the family economy. So there's a good reason to invest in education if you're going to turn the country around in the long term. But secondly, the social rates of return are also the highest in the world. And if you email me, I will give you that data. Therefore, it's not a bad place to start if your goal is to change uh, the country. You change it through investments in education. And not to make the story too complex, but this is where I think there are different levels at which you can intervene. The one level at which you can intervene is like the Irish. You say, we have skills, we can use it right here, we know. There's only one area in education in which the research is unequivocal, and it's in the area of preschool education, that there's a huge difference between a quality preschool education and, uh, you know, just occupying the kids. So that a kid that had a quality comes to grade one with a huge gap already with a kid who just was, you know, being taken care of. The really bad news from Nick Spall's research is the gap never closes over 12 years. So here you have a problem that you can solve by simply putting a huge amount of money, not where the noise is, which is in universities, but where the need is, uh, more acutely felt, and that is in the foundation years of school. The first thing you can do is that. The second thing I often tell people, <clears throat> you know, I look at all these rich folk in Houghton and, 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 and Kirsten and sort of saying, just imagine you put every kid, the kids of your domestics, through the same school that your own child goes, already you're making a difference. But you are in a professional uh, firm, you're in a company, you can make a much larger impact than that. And once again, I know that some accounting firms certainly have this, I know Investec has a huge program, it's one of the most successful in turning around math and science results in the rural schools. Uh, in Gauteng and the Free State. I mean, it's a huge program. Talk to a fellow called Seth Luhani uh, Manchidi, Seth. It's an absolutely amazing program. Where is your program like that? Why don't you spend an hour after your conference and sort of say, if you don't have it already, what is it that we can do that can bridge disadvantaged youth into this particular... Yeah. And let me tell you how this works. I figured this out a long time ago when I was still growing up in Cape Town. You know, um, <clears throat> A father at bishops, <laughs> you know the school bishops, <laughs> I was there the other day, oh, the principal was so upset with me, he asked me to speak to the parents, which is a big mistake, <laughs> but as we moved towards the hall where I was going to speak to the parents, he says to me, uh, Professor Jones, you know, you know how people speak in Cape Town, colonial English. He says, Professor Johnson, I would really appreciate it if you don't in the slightest even begin to suggest to the parents anything about mathematical literacy. I said, what? Your school offers mathematical literacy? He says, yes. I said, sir, with the money you pay for tuition, you can get the best teachers in the world. Why the hell are you teaching mathlet? Isn't this the school that gave us Mark Shuttleworth? He said, yeah, but we also gave you Herschel Gibbs. I said, okay. <laughs> Go right ahead. <laughs> Include everyone, you know. But here's the problem. Okay? Here's the problem. That lousy, stupid kid with a rich father who works at Stutterford's or Garlic's or whatever the place, he calls his friend at Stutterford's. He says, Bob, my son here, he's in grade 12, he's not doing too well. My wife assures me he's my kid. <laughs> Can you sort him out? 
And of course, he goes there and he gets sorted out and he's a job for life. And this total moron, you know, rises in the company. A black kid in Lavendale, Haderfeld, Lange, Guguleto doesn't have that. And so helping kids get that social capital is something that can make a massive difference. I don't know of any black person of my generation who simply walked into your profession and became something. You needed people who are already in those professions to help bridge that gap. If you can take 100 black actuaries and teach, first of all, teach the kids some very good <coughs> mathematics because that's a big problem in our schools. And from grade 10 already, take them through and nurture them and love them and show them how to wake up at 6 and go to bed at midnight and teach them the habits of work and the shortcuts and the, and the long cuts into making the profession. You could make a huge difference in your profession but also teach people the social skills, the ability to work alongside them, the ability to reason before you get to rage, the ability to just, you know, so, and you will save this country. But we're not going to save this country. We have 80% of the schools that are not working, 20% working, of the schools are working for white folk and the black middle classes. That is not sustainable. So there are th very specific things from the individual to the project to the company in which you can make a huge difference. But there's a big problem that you face. And the problem is all of us have the, this inbuilt because of our past. We tend to think of ourselves first. You tend to think of your own children. Okay? And for me, what's needed in our culture, I'm sorry I'm going off on a tangent here, but what's needed in our culture is an understanding that unless my neighbor's child does well, my child is not doing well. That's a shift in focus. That's a different political philosophy. That's an understanding of everybody together and rather than me alone. If our politicians just understood that, we would not have mentally ill patients dying by being handed off to unregistered providers. I mean, we can change this country, but it's not just the skill, it's the attitude, the ability to care that is also important. I'm sorry, I went on a long tangent. But that's a book I'm writing at the moment. What can we do? Anybody else? Sir. So, Professor, this is a bit of an open-ended question, but why is the political will not there and how can we change it? Because I often thought we, we moan about politicians, but I'm not willing to go into politics, so I actually can't moan about it. I mean, that's philosophical, but you want to go up in the business world and you want to... You're not willing to make a difference in politics. <clears throat> Us now. Well, that's, that's a question I struggle with. I, I think two things. First of all, one of the reasons that we were fooled is we always thought, even me as a kid, you thought of the ANC in particular as this great, you know, uh, self-effacing, liberating, you know, uh, movement that was going to save all of us. It turns out, if you read Stephen Ellis's book, that a lot of the rot you see today was already a rot you saw in exile. You know, arms deal being one of those. So I've learned very quickly not to put your faith in political parties, but to put your faith in ordinary people to change that. You know? I have no doubt, just by the way, that Donald Trump will, will not, because he's such a hachlika. I don't have an English word that captures hachlika. You know, he's a sickening uh, person. I don't know... I know for a fact he's not going to survive another. Because ordinary people in the country are not like that, I can assure you. There's mad people like that. There's always been racists in the Klan and everybody else. The majority of people from coast to coast are not like that. And they will get rid of him. That's 
that's for sure. Similarly, in our country, the majority of people just want this bloody place to work, you know? So I can't understand, for example, my sister takes a train every morning called Metro Rail. The locals call it Metro Fail, you know? There's not a single train that runs on time. You, 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 you play a Russian roulette every morning. Is it the train going to leave from this platform or that platform? People get to work late, they lose their jobs and so on. That can be fixed very easily with the right political will. But as I was saying to the sister over here, it requires a different way of understanding yourself and others. It requires a different way of thinking about success and resources. And I'm not saying religion is the only way to get that, but I really do think we need to return to the basic question is what? Why are you here? And if you're just here to feed your bloody face, you know, that kind of thing is not going to get us anywhere. So I draw on the examples of people who live selfless lives, and that's why I mentioned the Irish and so many others, as an example of what we should aspire to. So I see the ANC saying recently, Nelson Mandela was a fighter, Nelson Mandela was a stalwart, Nelson was a... I said, yeah, but he was also an ethical person. Why didn't you talk about that? <laughs> you know? Etc. So I think it depends on which stories we're going to tell each other. If you only tell each other stories of corruption and, and, and all of that and greed, then of course you get one kind of South Africa. But if you also tell the stories of the people who don't behave in that mode, you get to a different point. I'm convinced it's not going to come from the top this time. It's going to have to come from ordinary people, from citizens move, citizen movements. And I really believe what Bobby Godsell and, and others are doing could get us there. Thank you, Professor. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, on behalf of the Retirement Matters Committee of the Actuarial Society, I'd like to thank the Professor for his very profound delivery and his message of hope. Uh, thank you for making the time to come through all the way from Cape Town and, and deliver to us. Uh, we sincerely appreciate it, and we'd like to give you a small token of our thanks just in thanking you for your, for your efforts. Thank you, Professor Janssen.